and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. You might remember last season we did a couple of episodes which were in conjunction with some conferences that were on, the Factor Conference here in Australia and the TF Conference in the UK. We really like to support these kind of local conferences that are on. They're really important for us to get together as a field and find out what research is happening, what things people are finding. And our good friend Luke Rodder from San Francisco is organising the CAT meeting, California Association of Toxicologists. We were planning to do an episode during the week of the conference, but it's now been postponed due to the coronavirus, like a lot of other conferences. But we still wanted to go ahead with the episode and talk to a few of the speakers who were going to be presenting at the conference, just to bring you a flavour of the CAT conference. So in this episode, you'll hear from Luke, as well as three speakers from the conference. Jared Wagner is a professor of forensic science at Oklahoma State University. Juliet kin is forensic toxicologist at the office of the Chief Medical Examiner in San Francisco. And Alan Wu is a professor of laboratory medicine at San Francisco General Hospital. And they're all quite different topics, so... Just like at a real conference, there's something for everyone. All right, let's get into it. So welcome, Luke Rotter, back to the Toxpod. Thanks for joining us, Luke. It's good to hear your voice again. I really appreciate it. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the last time and um, back again. So thank you for inviting me. Luke, you are hosting the California Association of Toxicology meeting this year. Tell us a bit about the California Association of Toxicology. Uh, yes, so um, myself, but also my uh, San Francisco Chief Medical Examiner colleagues, uh, Sue Perrin, Kelsa West, and Danielle Dahari, uh, helping me co-host this uh, meeting. Uh, it's actually the spring meeting. So the California Association of Toxicologists, or CAT, or CAT, have two meetings per year, a spring and a fall meeting, or an autumn meeting for those what we're used to down under. And so I put my hand up to host the 2020 spring meeting this year in, in San Francisco, uh, really so we can try and highlight a few key areas that we wanted to uh, do so for the members, which the members are predominantly California uh, toxicologists. We also have some members who attend from out of state, but predominantly it is for the, uh, the California state private and public uh, laboratory toxicologists. Sounds great. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Luke. Thank you. So very pleased to be speaking with Jared Wagner from Oklahoma State University. Jared, welcome to the Toxpod. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy the program, so I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully contributing to the good content. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And it's been an interesting process which has led to this interview. So We're obviously doing this episode focused on the CAT conference, which was going to be this week as we're recording this. Now it's been postponed, obviously, and you were going to be giving a talk there about distance education, online learning, that sort of thing. And then COVID happened. So uh, this topic's taken on a whole new relevance. But tell us about what's the work that you've been doing in this space over the, the last few years? 
Well, since we're virtually at CAT, I want to say first that uh, one of my first memberships in a forensic organization was with CAT back when I first started. Uh, I grew up in California, and so California Association of Toxicologists was a great organization, and I was really pleased that Dr. Rada invited me to come out. And I know uh, Luke's an Aussie like you guys, yes, uh, but he he's is. over here. He's a, he's a transplant, um, and I love working with him, and we work together on oral fluid and some of the other committees within SOFT. But that's one of the reasons I love SOFT and TAFT is just getting to know so many different colleagues. And basically, with the CAT meeting, I wanted to come share a little bit about what we've been doing at Oklahoma State in terms of distance education. When I first started here in 2007, we were doing distance education, but we had these online chat rooms, and I'm a hunt and peck typist, you know, so I was like, I don't know how to cover, so we would take our slides and turn them into JPEGs, and then we'd upload these JPEGs, and then I'd have to talk about each one, and then the students would respond and stuff, and I was like, this is really hard, and then I would record, like, I would pre-type my comments, so it looked like I'm a super speedy typist, mm-hmm. and, um, but it was really challenging, but it, we were trying to provide um, this education online, very similar to what you'd have in a regular lecture. And yes, the, the comment about COVID, you know, it was so funny because I was like, well, I was going to talk about all these things that I think are in the future, but because of COVID, that future just became now for so many people. And so um, I was going to talk about how great Zoom was. <laughs> so I'm afraid um, a lot of my friends now are very Zoomed out, you know, and I see they send me these pictures of these galleries and there's like, 40 senior managers in this room and you're like yeah this is not a productive yeah that's all we're doing now is zooming isn't it we're we're zooming right now in fact well yeah right and this is a great platform there's so many different applications designed to help you facilitate communication so when i started in 2007 so and i started in online so i mean i've i've started teaching at fresno state in 1999 so i've been teaching traditional traditional programs and I had that experience of GCAM, general chemistry and those things. And in-person lecture, you know, you got 75 students and they're staring at you and you're like, can I do this? And can I repeat it and again in two hours, right? Because I'm going to have a whole new class. And then you're trying to remember, did I say that? Did I not say that? But we, we did some online homework assignments there to keep track because so you have that many students, it's hard to keep track. And the homework obviously prepares them for the exams. So uh, it was important to have some and I learned to be to think creatively about it. And when I got here, we had those chat rooms that I described. So I, I started with Yahoo Messenger. So what I was looking for was a way to pull multiple people together into the same space so we could be face-to-face, at least virtually. So now you can see, what, 10 years, 13 years later, we have this option of Zoom. Uh, so I'm going to throw a couple terms. We have synchronous and asynchronous. And synchronous is when we provide the educational material in a traditional in a traditional lecture setting. So if you think about, like if I'm in the vet school or if I'm in the medical school and I'm lecturing to an auditorium, or I can say, oh, I'm at Fresno State and I'm lecturing to a GCAM class. I have a camera in the back and I'm recording audio and I'm broadcasting it. I wanna have a satellite campus. So that whole satellite lecture system developed and that's synchronous because you have to be in the seat at the same time as me. But that doesn't work super well. Like this for us, you're staying up. You drink a lot of caffeine to be up late. I've got some caffeine going to be up early. And so to be synchronous, it forces it to be in the same, in the same space at the same time, at least virtually. Um, I did that for a while, but I found that it wasn't practical. If I had a student, and I haven't had Australian students, but I have students on the West Coast of uh, the US, on the East Coast, we've had some students in other countries. The question is, how do I schedule a lecture at 6 p.m. on Monday? 
and expect everybody to be there. So what I did then was I was like, well, I have these great recording features. And just so you know, I've recorded the entire course multiple times uh, because we keep changing platforms. So first I recorded in Blackboard Collaborate and I was so happy and then we lost the license and I had no access. I'm like, what's going on? Where's my class? I get to redo it. So then we, um, and it keeps it up to date. So I guess that's good. Yeah, I was going to say, that is that maybe a good thing that it forces you to record it new every now and then? Yeah, no, it's great. It also, it also allows me to not have it be death by Jared, right? So the students shouldn't just have to endure my lectures the entire time. There's so many unique perspectives. We have a lot of adjuncts from all over the country uh, that can bring a unique perspective. Like uh, Dr. Hustis can talk about cannabis. Um, Robert Johnson is down in Tarrant County at the medical examiners. He can talk about postmortem. You know, we've had a lot of great people that can provide those lectures. So what this new space, and I recorded in WebEx, lost a license, and so now we're in Zoom. The nice thing about Zoom is even if it gives you an online link to the recording, when you click on that and go to that space, which you as a person responsible can edit if you want. So if you really need to take some content out, you can. But when you get to that space and you provide that link, it automatically allows a download as an MP4. So an MP4 file is just a video file. And so my students, a lot of them are, they're very popular in forensic science. They travel a lot. They're going and delivering training at different places. And I wanted them to be able to view this stuff while they're on the airplane. And so the nice thing about Zoom is it allows a download as an MP4 file. So it's only like 80 megs for an entire hour and a half lecture. So they can watch these at any time they want. And what I do is I post content for the week and I give the written assignments. And um, so the students can interact with the material on their own time and they can flex their time as they need. So if they're working full time, hey, I can do this in the evening. And if they have, you know, well, you know, my child has sports, so I got to work, I got to do the sports, and but I can do it tomorrow night. So we try and be flexible with that. And I've had a lot of great success with that. And then also, so asynchronous, in my opinion, is the way to go. Um, most traditional academics, when they start approaching this, we go straight to synchronous but online. As a faculty member, it's, it's a skill to learn to talk at the computer because I love interacting with the audience. So if, if we get to be together at a conference and I get to present, you'll see I really like to make fun of the front row. Um, I make people wake up in the back and, and ask them where they were last night. Come on, let's get with the material, you know. So I like to keep it fun. And I also can tell if the audience is drifting off. I can tell if they're not understanding what I'm saying. So if we start talking about uh, LCMS methodology and suppression and enhancement and I get these blank stares, I can go, okay, well, you realize that in order to know we don't have a false negative, we have to know that we got our analyte into the instrument, right? So, you know, so I can start kind of back. I can do that if I have a live audience or a synchronous audience when there's people on the other end that I can interact with. I can't do it when I'm just speaking to the computer. But the value of having a recorded lecture is that I have available by email and we can schedule online office hours that if they have a question, they can let me know. And then if I get the same question multiple times, I'm like, oh, okay, I need to redo this. I need to make sure I cover that as I go through. But um, I really hope for the traditional schools and even OSU, you know, we're going to open back up in the fall. They've said we are. Uh, so we're going to have students back on campus. I just, I hope it works. Uh, the online experience of, for everyone that's been just thrust into online ed education, the experience has not been great. Yeah, everyone's learning on the fly. I mean, the same with schools. I've got children at school and all the teachers are suddenly having to learn how to do online courses and it's, it hasn't been completely smooth, but they're doing the best they can anyway. So what have you found since the COVID restrictions came into place? Have you found that there were some things that you thought might work that haven't worked well or some things that you've learned more about? 
well, we're positioned better than anyone else sort of in the world <laughs> to, to work <laughs> with COVID, but that wasn't my intention. And I thought that there was a space for us, for those people that are in a lab and don't want to leave the lab, but they still want to get, pursue their higher education. I just thought this was a nice, uh, you know, a nice um, hybrid of, of online learning and research that still is a great product. I will tell you that Zoom, like multiplying their user population by so many so quickly was not good. But I have asked and received exceptions to our rules of in-person defenses from our grad college. I had a student uh, just finishing up their master's, they had everything done, but they got a position. And you know how getting a job is so important and backgrounds take so long and you don't know when they're going to finish. So I'll have them apply and say fall of their last year knowing they're almost done. And if that position comes through in March, you know, theoretically, if they got two or three months more of coursework and, and research, we just make sure we have everything wrapped up and I have them finish their coursework remotely. And I've been able to have them defend. I've had a couple of defenses remotely before, but that was with special dispensation. In this instance now, we had the defense online. In my opinion, I thought it went really well. I really was appreciative. My student, first of all, my student did a super job. Um, and it's not easy to do, right? So I think some of the practice we have of doing Zoom things has kind of came through on that. So what do you see in the future then? For if you can, uh, you, you didn't exactly predict COVID, but you were ready for it. But what do you what do you see coming in the future in terms of distance education and online education? Well, you guys inspired me this morning. I think you were talking about these uh, virtual goggles, and uh, we could <laughs> we could walk into the soft meeting and and uh, we could hear a lecture or you know, but yeah. So um, I really like the online defense. Um, I'm hoping that it becomes a more permanent thing or something that I can say. Would you mind if we did this? And I don't mind. Look, if I have a student that happens to be in a New York lab or a Florida lab and they're they're attending here but doing research there. I'm fine with having them come here a couple times, like come here to uh, advance to candidacy, or we call it admission to candidacy. That's when you've done most of your coursework. You've got a really solid idea of your research, and you're going to be now, you're now going to be kind of designated as a PhD candidate so that you're really you research only from here out. That I've sort of wanted to do in person because we also have people defend their research proposal at that time. But honestly, we could do that in Zoom pretty easily. And actually, I just participated in one of those and it worked really well. Right. Okay. So, um, and the other online thing, obviously, is the defense. So, right now, those two things have to be in person. So, if I had a student from Australia that wanted to come here and do a master's with us, it's no problem. Um, if I had them want to do a PhD, right now, I would have to have them come here twice. So, there's, um, there are definitely logistical challenges. So I really want us to get to a place where we could be completely letting them do things remotely. But I do want to, I have to say, it is not to reduce the quality. It's to, it's to enable the students to do the same rigorous research and the same development, having sessions with them. We have a lot of one-on-one -on -one sessions that are online private sessions where we're mentoring them. We're talking them through uh, challenges they're having with subject matter. We're talking them through problems they're having in the instrument. I'm not next to them in the lab, but I guess my point is, is we can be there now with FaceTime and other tools and Skype and Zoom. And there's not a lot that I can't do remotely. So um, that's kind of where I'm hoping it goes. But my goal in that is to make sure too, we're not trying to reduce quality. We're We're just trying to make this educational pathway available to more people. And I really like 
I think this is going to force a little bit of structure. So I think, you know, online has been just kind of moving forward. People do different stuff, but I think with COVID it's going to force some attention on it and let us make sure that that quality remains while we go online, if we have to go online. So, and again, as much as I love online, I really do love the uh, traditional programs as well. And I think there's space for everybody because not everybody's right for our program. Some people really don't like online education and they're like, eh, Wagner records a lecture and I can watch him when I want, but I hate watching a recorded lecture. Yeah, I understand. Well, thank you very much, Jared. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. It's, it's time for bed for you and I, I must go engage in my day. Juliet Kinua, welcome to the Toxpod. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Yes, that's unfortunate the Californian meeting couldn't go ahead. Uh, but uh, the next best thing is talking to a few people from the conference. So um, we wanted to talk a little bit about your talk, which was about retrospective screening of NPS on PM samples using LC time of flight. So um, give us a little bit about your background. Uh, so I'm originally from Kenya, um, uh, which is where I did my undergrad in biochemistry and then did my uh, master's degree uh, at the university, at the Texas Tech University in Texas. Uh, and I studied forensic science there. And then I moved further to do my PhD in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Antwerp. Um, oh. and, that, and that was actually where I, I got introduced into wastewater analysis. And my project was specializing in developing methods for NPS screening on high-resolution mass spec uh, for wastewater and also biological matrices. And now I'm working for the city of San Francisco's medical examiner office uh, as a forensic toxicologist, mainly on the implementation and validation of our high-resolution mass spec analysis. So in the abstract I read, you talked about high-res mass spectrometry data being uh, extremely complex and you just get so much of it and I guess there's a chance that you can get bogged down in it and your talk was sort of mapping out a strategy about how to deal with it is that right? You're right the data can be quite voluminous uh, physically and then also uh, the data processing can also take a lot of time. Our current strategy is to collect data that is like long term and sustainable and can be used for targeted data processing and also for non-targeted uh, data analysis for like not retrospective analysis. And so the strategy we, we're going with is an untargeted acquisition technique, uh, which captures full scan data and MSMS data in one injection that one can later on come and interrogate the data, right? And do a retrospective screening. And we want the same data to be useful for a targeted data processing approach where we have an in-house library with all the reference standards and we can have confident identification on those. And then in the process, uh, maybe quarterly or even monthly, if we get better at it, uh, we can be retrospectively checking what have we missed because, you know, like with NPS, the compounds are always, um, like right now we're at 950 new psychoactive substances and they keep evolving. And it's possible that you're missing compounds as you're using your targeted methods. And so a, a, 
an untargeted approach uh, is useful for that. So these are postmortem bloods. What's your sample preparation? Uh, so we have a pretty generic uh, sample prep method. Uh, we're just doing a protein precipitation extraction. And uh, we have two parts of it where one goes into for filtration and the other one is part of it is not filtered. And that way we're making sure we're capturing pretty much everything. And so what's the data acquisition that you're using? We are using a data independent acquisition uh, technique. Uh, and with the SIAX instrumentation, we can use the SWATH method for that data independent acquisition. So you've got the best of both worlds. You're analyzing all the data for all the, say, classic drugs that you normally look for, probably plus a few common NPS. And then later on, you go back and have a look at doing some screening against some other databases. And for these other databases, you don't necessarily have forensic standards for, do you? Right, exactly. And it's becoming a popular thing to use the crowdsourced databases. And what we're doing is on a like quarterly basis, we're updating our suspect list. And so that's what don't we have on our shelves? What, don't, what reference standards are we not having in our department? And then we update that list and that becomes our suspect list. And then we look for these compounds retrospectively and using the databases, the crowdsourced databases, we can do some kind of like a tentative identification. If a different lab perhaps has had this standard before or they've identified this compound before. Uh, so that's the approach we're taking for now. So where do you get the fragment information or the mass spectral information for these suspects that you're looking for? For the fragment information, we're using the crowdsourced databases. So these are internet-based NPS reservoirs of data like high-res NPS and MZ Cloud and things like that, I guess. Right. And uh, the advantage of like high-res NPS is there's uh, plenty of labs that are submitting their MSMS libraries to this website. And so one can actually go in there and, you know, if you have a suspect that you want to confirm, it's possible that they have that fragmentation profile on, on their website. Yeah. So uh, I guess from there, you'd find a possible suspect compound. And at what point do you do more work on that? When do you decide to maybe purchase an authentic standard? So if we do have a match or at least uh, tentatively identify one of our suspects. We then do a targeted injection on maybe the sample in question. And in this targeted injection, we're using data dependent acquisition for that specific feature of interest and its MSMS profile. And then we do a fragment elucidation where we elucidate the specific fragments. And if there's a match, then we go ahead and buy the reference standard. So I guess uh, with your SWOT analysis, even though it's got a narrower precursor band, you're still not 100% sure that the fragments you're looking at are actually from that iron. So then you do a more targeted data-dependent acquisition to get a nice MSMS spectrum that you can work off um, with confidence. And then buy a standard. Yeah, that's a good approach. So where does the retrospective screening come into it? For us, the retrospective screening will come in, you know, 
at, at this point, we're in discussions whether we'll be doing it on a monthly basis or on a quarterly basis. So as we integrate that um, process, for now, we're we're just going to be doing it maybe quarterly and then see what we missed and then check the crowdsourced databases, see what's out there, and then see how we can purchase the standards. Uh, at the moment, our targeted method does cover a lot of the new psychoactive substances. And how many targeted drugs do you have? So these are drugs that you've got authentic standards for or some uh, retention time information, yeah? Right. We have the authentic uh, reference standards for about 700 drugs. That's a big library. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. Does your software pick out suspect compounds without any precursor information so for example it might recognize a peak that's present there like this is like a um, completely unknown screening we're using one of the vendor uh our vendor softwares uh called MarkerView, and what we're doing is a raw data feature extraction and that just actually it's a naive pick picking extraction algorithm no masses are pre-selected or anything so it finds uh, peaks uh, based on their isotopic pattern, and then it aligns these peaks across all the samples that are in a batch. And so then that sort of identifies new targets that aren't in your target screening and aren't in your suspect screening, and the third part is this sort of a non-targeted approach. Right. It's a, it's a very non-targeted approach, and we're also going to be including, you know, like an exclusion list for all the targeted compounds that we already know, and we know their retention time, we know their profiles and everything. Part of the reason I really like this workflow is it does the whole feature prioritization as well. And so you can incorporate like blank subtraction, you can do data filtering, where you have like a fold change and set your peak intensity to uh, exclude those uh, commonly seen interferences and unnecessary peaks that affect your analysis. Have you found anything interesting recently that you can talk about with us? Um, I'll keep you in suspense for the next time. <laughs> <laughs> and will this method uh, take over your entire, will that be the, the sole screening method that you have in your laboratory or do you have others that are running in sort of parallel? Oh, we have other like more uh, triple quad methods that are very targeted uh, for specific panels. So that on those you do the quantification and things like that. Right. Okay, that sounds very interesting, Juliet. I'm sorry we couldn't hear the presentation in person at CAT, but hopefully this is the next best thing that we've got. No, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Alan Wu, thanks for joining us. Now your talk was going to be on the topic of pharmacogenomics. Just tell us a little bit about what you plan to speak on at the conference. Well, uh, so I've been asked to talk about uh, the use of pharmacogenomic testing for forensic toxicology. And uh, it's a uh, program that we started here 15 years ago, but it has certainly has its uh, hits and misses. It hasn't taken off like I had hoped. I think the concepts are sound, but the uh, implementation has been uh, difficult for a number of reasons. So if you could just go into a bit of background about what is pharmacogenomics and what's the, the point behind it all? It certainly is an area that's people are becoming more and more interested in researching it. Yeah, so um, 
it all fits in with the so-called uh, personalized medicine or precision medicine agenda, whereby we are not going to just uh, tailor everybody to the same treatment that it would be based on your genetic makeup and therefore adjustments in drug dosing will be personalized. And so there's a number of drugs that we thought was going to be good candidates for this. Warfarin is uh, a real good one. We know that uh, there are a lot of variables that affect how well warfarin will work. And one of them is the genetic variables. We can predict individuals who are poor metabolizers of the drug and those who are rapid metabolizers. And so it was thought that with some type of dosing algorithm that incorporates uh, genetic information along with the other factors that we've been using for many years, such as age, gender, uh, weight, and, and other demographic information, that we could better predict the starting dose that would be needed to um, produce a efficacious result. And with warfarin, it's about measuring the TINR that you want to uh, target a value between two and three. That provides the optimum uh, protection against blood clots while at the same time uh, prevents uh, bleeding. And so such an algorithm was created, but uh, unfortunately it uh, was never adopted. Yeah, it can be a very time-consuming process for both doctor and patient with a lot of these medications trying to, first of all, find the right drug because some people's uh, genetics might just not be um, very well suited to that particular drug, but then also trying to find the right dose, right? That's correct. It's uh, a combination of uh, selecting the best drug for a particular individual and predicting efficacy while avoiding toxicity. And in some cases, in the case of warfarin, uh, when we first started doing this 15 years ago, there wasn't an alternative medication for oral anticoagulation. So it wasn't about selection. It was about trying to maximize efficacy and minimize toxicity. But what has happened in the interim is that because many of these drugs could be improved with pharmacogenomic testing, this opened the door for the pharmaceutical companies to produce next generation drugs such as these anticoagulants, now factor 10A inhibitors like Apixaban, that don't require pharmacogenomic testing. And so it is slowly and surely uh, replacing warfarin and the sales that we get are that here's a drug that A, doesn't require pharmacogenomic testing and B, doesn't even require monitoring or efficacy that we can just say this is the right dose and we can alleviate these other ancillary things that, uh, that we're doing for warfarin. So Alan, are these new drugs uh, available currently or are they in development? No, they, they've been released and there's a family of, of, of factor 10A inhibitors for uh, warfarin, uh, I'm sorry, for oral anticoagulation. And, and so what doesn't make a lot of sense to me is that these are drugs that are on patent and therefore proprietary and cost quite a bit more than the warfarin drugs, which have been around for 50 years and are now generic. 
So we're paying more for these drugs, and part of the rationale is that, well, we don't need to do testing. But the testing is a trivial part of a uh, dose regimen, and that uh, it uh, still doesn't work out that, I mean, if you could do the, the genetic testing, which only needs to be done once, and you can do the regular monitoring, and it's still cheaper than going to a generic drug. Sorry, going to a, an unpatent drug. So just going back a step, I guess, what's the what, what's the actual process of doing pharmacogenomics in combination with dosage? How does that work? So if you take a blood sample and uh, you extract the DNA from the white cells uh, and then do a uh, genetic test, if they're targeted, so we're not looking for all the different genes, we're only looking for a handful of genes and the genetic variances found in those genes. And then there's a, uh, an equation that you can plug in it's available online. It's actually called warfarindosing.org. And you plug in the demographic factors, as I mentioned. How old are you? How tall? How much do you weigh? What's your ancestry? What is your uh, uh, sex? Whether or not you have other drugs on board. And then you plug in the pharmacogenomic parameters. And out comes a starting dose, somewhere typically between 1 and 7 milligrams. And that would be a better prediction of what the end dose will be needed rather than doing a trial and error, which is what was done before this dosing algorithm was available. So how do you see all of this affecting other drugs, which are essentially pro-drugs, things like tramadol and codeine, which we know that there are big differences in the way that people metabolize those to the, the main active component. How do you see this affecting drugs like that? Well, um, clopidogrel is a, is a pro-drug, and that's a pretty good example, again, where you have a generic drug in products, and you have a family now of on-patent uh, drugs. So Plavix uh, is an anti-platelet drug, and uh, we are seeing a gradual shift away from the generic drug, Plavix, to more of the on-patent drugs like Relinta or Ticagrelol. It's a, it's a parallel situation that happened with uh, Warfarin. Now, you mentioned some of these uh, opiates like uh, codeine and Dramadol and, and uh, Oxycodone. These are pro-drugs, and they are metabolized uh, by certain enzymes to form morphine and uh, oxymorphone, and, and these are the active components of these drugs. Uh, there is interest in measuring pharmacogenomic parameters to try to predict um, what might be a good dose. But uh, these are analgesics, and this too is uh, dosed somewhat by trial and error. If uh, you try a dose and you don't get pain relief, then the next step would be to increase the dose. And so it's not being used to titrate the, uh, the amount of drug needed, partly because we, we have a, uh, a cause and effect type of, uh, of outcome. And uh, also for that reason, uh, in the laboratory, we don't measure the therapeutic concentration of these drugs to, to try to uh, maximize a tight range. So a combination of factors have led to the non-use of pharmacogenomics for pain management. Right, that's interesting. And you mentioned before about 
a, a person's heritage. Obviously, uh, people with different heritage have different genetics. Uh, do you see that perhaps there'll be specific drugs marketed in specific countries around the world? Is that where this is heading? Uh, no. And uh, again, uh, it's really pharma-driven. Uh, pharma is against personalized medicine. They don't want to restrict uh, a population who might get a drug. They are trying to find the one-size-fits-all model that here's a drug, it works on everybody, you don't need to do testing, and we don't need to, uh, to uh, select other drugs. This is the model that, that is most profitable for them. So there are many, many different isoforms of these enzymes. Is, it, is there too many? I mean, uh, is it that easy to say whether someone's an ultra-metabolizer or a poor metabolizer? Is it that simple? It, it is uh, uh, more complicated than what I have uh, alluded to, and it is exactly your your point, is that there are a dozen cytochrome P450 isoenzymes. There's 2D6, there's 2C9, 2C19, 3A4, 3A5, 2B6. And it's a little bit uh, too simplistic to suggest that a variance in one is going to be the uh, ultimate decider of outcome. And what we know, we do know is that uh, our body has a remarkable means of compensation so that if you're deficient in one enzyme, you might over-regulate or under-regulate depending on the direction that's needed of another enzyme that is uh, not uh, a variant. So uh, we're finding that it is that you do need to have a more of a complete picture of the pharmacogenomic profile. What we've also seen, however, is that when somebody has one uh, variant, that is often occurs in other genes as well. So you might have uh, you might be a poor metabolizer in several of the genes, and in that situation, compensation uh, doesn't happen because the other enzymes aren't going to kick in. It is complex, but um, definitely you can get more information than, uh, than just looking at drug levels. So what's the? it sounds like it's got a lot of benefits. What's the limitation at the moment to doing it? Is it the expense of the genetic testing? Yeah, so certainly that was the uh, issue uh, early on, that it would be several hundred dollars to get one pharmacogenomic uh, endpoint, but uh, the the field of uh, genetics has, uh, has certainly progressed to the extent now where it is much cheaper to get a, a profile. Uh, many people already have their profile if they have subscribed or, or purchased a kit from 23andMe or Ancestry.com. These will contain the uh, genotypes, pharmacogenomically relevant uh, 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 genes. And so I think that uh, it's becoming more realistic that, that uh, access to this information is, uh, is available. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Alan. Okay. Have a good day. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. As we said, the CAT conference will be rescheduled at some time in the future. But until then, stay safe, everyone. See you next time.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting, taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.